the quality for building is very similar to the quality for animal bedding. So if you're hitting one or the other, you're going to have, you know, the other the other side covered. And at this point, to be honest, and this is another reality check for the industry, the demand for bedding products is much higher than it is for building. Um, we brought in seven shipping containers last year, about 30,000 pounds a piece. So maybe 200,000 pounds worth of hemp herd last year um, and built 10, 10 projects with it. <laughs> that, that amount of herd maybe. Hey guys, it's Mandy with Global Hemp Association. I wanted to say thank you so much for joining. I'm excited about the opportunity to build a relationship and connect this supply chain. I mean, after all, that's why we started the association. Our association was built on the foundation of connecting supply chain, building relationships, and helping you grow your business. Anyone from farmers, manufacturers, and distributors, people that are passionate about the supply chain, and those creating products selling into biofuels, plastics, textiles, construction, and building materials. Somewhat, I hesitate to call it. I hesitate to call it landscaping uh, because we weren't, you know, mowing lawns and cutting grass. We were doing a lot of stream bank stabilization, stormwater management, um, uh, a lot of private property land management, uh, and publicly bid stuff. So I really learned, you know, a lot about running a business and then also estimating and bidding. Probably most importantly, um, we did a lot of competitive, you know, public bids. So. Um, in that process, though, you know, where we are in, in Allentown, uh, we're relatively close to New York City. So a lot of our plant material, because it was native, uh, native meaning that, you know, appropriate to the, the eco region that we're in um, naturally, uh, a lot of that plant material went into New York City for container gardens. Mm -hmm. uh, many of our many of our plants were installed on the High Line. For anyone that's ever been to New York City, there's an old rail line. Uh, that they turned into a really beautiful walking path with container gardens, native plantings, native fruit trees. Really cool. If you're ever in New York City, definitely take a walk on that. Okay. Uh, and and so, you know, I realized that there was sort of an appetite for, uh, you know, these plants in an urban environment uh, and started looking at how to make uh, container gardens, planter boxes, basically. Uh, and the first one I ever made was made out of concrete. Uh, it was about two feet by maybe two and a half feet, you know, just a big rectangle. Uh, and it was ungodly heavy. It was really hard to move. So I started looking around for alternatives, uh, sort of stumbled upon uh, aircrete, which is like an aerated concrete that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, and that's when I found hempcrete. And I made the same mistake that everybody does when they hear that word. I was like, oh, cool. I can use that instead of concrete for my planter boxes. So that led me down a rabbit hole. But uh, what, what really pushed me uh, was an experience I had at Limeworks here in Telford, PA. Uh, Andy DeGrucci, the owner there at Limeworks, and the guy that was sort of the, the operations person at that point, Chris, uh, they both had experience uh, working with hempcrete. Uh, Andy is a, is a good friend with uh, Tim Callahan, who some of you may know is sort of one of the original hempcrete builders here in the United States. He was active in about you know 2008 to 2012 range. Um, and so they were having a workshop on hempcrete, and I couldn't believe it. They were you know 30 minutes from where I worked at the time and about 45 minutes from where I lived. So I just couldn't believe it. There was a company here in PA that was already making a precast hempcrete binder. Like they already had a product um, and, and they were offering this workshop. So I signed up. Um, it was 600 bucks for three days and I was the only one that signed up. Um, this was June of 2018. So I took the workshop, uh, you know, fell in love with it right away. I mean, it's just such a wonderful material, rewarding experience. 
Uh, and Chris and Andy at that point said, hey, you know, we get a lot of inquiries from people about, you know, builders or contractors. You, you seem to be pretty handy. You know, would you consider, you know, signing up to be on our, our list of, you know, recommended installers? And I said, well, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. Sign me up. So, um, and, and by November of that same year, 2018, the, the farm bill was signed, you know, sort of rescheduling hemp away from cannabis in general. So that to me was sort of a green light. And I feel like at that point in time in the industry, there were a lot of people that were swirling around thinking and that were maybe outside of the traditional, you know, cannabis activists or enthusiasts that were saying, oh, this is actually real. This is really happening. You know, they've just rescheduled it. They see Mitch McConnell platforming for hemp on the floor of the Sunstrand factory at the time. Uh, you know, so it was, uh, again, one of those rare bipartisan sort of issues that um, I think at that point, a lot of people like me who, you know, obviously I'm a cannabis enthusiast, but had never been engaged professionally with cannabis or hemp in any way. Um, that was sort of a green light to a lot of us to say, okay, there's something here. We might actually be able to make a go of this. Um, and it's really standing on the backs of all the people that, you know, in the industry that have been sort of banging the drum for, you know, 30, 40 years now. Um, a lot of whom I've been really excited to meet and I now know or I consider friends, which is really crazy. So um, it's it's still a very small industry. And, and particularly for Hempcrete, I think one of the most exciting things for me was that um, it's still so new. So even guys like, you know, Tim Callahan and Steve Allen, um, Alex from UK Hempcrete, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the books that we buy that we all read about Hempcrete, they're still active. Those guys are still building. They're still out there. So it's not like a trade or something where the, you know, the, the originators are long gone. Um, you know, it's still very active. It's still sort of uh, happening. So that was really exciting. Uh, and then from there, you know, started connecting with people in the industry locally. It was January of 2019 when I finally quit my job at the nursery um, to do this full time. And that's where I linked up with uh, Drew and Anna from Coexist Build. Um, first thing we ever did together was build the Hemp House on Wheels. Uh, the National Hemp Association is in our backyard. Jeff Whaling and Erica yeah. are like basically neighbors. Um, and they caught wind that we were doing this and they said, Hey, we've got this great expo happening in New York, uh, on May 29th. Uh, and this was like February, I think of 2019, will it be ready? Will the hemp house on wheels be ready? We'd like to have it in our booth. And that was sort of, I think that was, you know, speaking about the fire and it feels like ever since I haven't been able to slow down, but, um, we literally had to plan backwards from when that, that, you know, asset was due in New York. Uh, at to the point that we were at then, which is like a rusted out equipment trailer. So that was crazy. I mean, there was months of like, you know, late nights and it was good though. I put all of my project management experience and estimating and bidding stuff to work right away. Um, we hired out for a few things like the welding on the frame and some other stuff. But for the most part, we built it together um, in their barn there in Blandon. Um, and then, you know, rolled into New York City with this thing, this hempcrete house on wheels that like, we didn't know if it was even going to survive. I didn't know if by the time I got through the tunnel, there was going to be a sheet of plaster on the ground or if we were going to flatten a Prius. Oh, it, it like, just, oh yeah, it was terrifying. A bunch of herd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was terrifying. And, you know, we got a lot of feedback from the industry at that point. People were kind of like, yeah, it's probably not a great idea, you know? And I certainly wouldn't, you know, I, I wouldn't drive it down the road every day, but we have over 3000 or close to 4,000 miles on it now. Uh, most recently out again with the National Hemp Association there in D.C. for Ag on the Mall. 
um, which is really great. So that's a shout out for National Hemp Association. Um, they really are affecting policy. And that's one of the reasons why we really threw our way in with that group. Um, you know, they're, they're uh, an organization in the hemp industry that really is actually doing the work uh, and getting in front of senators and testifying, um, you know, in front of the ag committee, things like that. So it's been, it's been a really great experience. We have a nice core here in Pennsylvania. Um, but, you know, from there, uh, the pandemic was really scary, scared the shit out of me. Literally, I didn't know if we were going to have a business on the other side of it. Um, you know, probably the worst time to have a, a new business uh, in, a, in a new industry. But 2020 was really good to us and 2021 was even better. So uh, I don't think that the pandemic had as negative as of, of an effect on industrial fiber, industrial hemp as it did on, uh, you know, the restaurant industry or other, other industries. It like opened the awareness to a need for new solutions and new innovation and new economic opportunities and new rotation crops. Like everything hemp hits the supply chain break or the pandemic exposed, right? As to like, hey, we have to be wiser about our housing. We have to have something that's going to last longer. We have to have something that we don't have to transport across the world, right? Okay. Yeah, agreed. We'll, we'll, we'll get into all together now, but that's really the core message, you know, that we arrived on with that, that nonprofit that I work with was that, um, you know, initially we had hemp as sort of a coalition and there was a lot of interested people. There were CBD folks, fiber, um, you know, textile folks, mostly CBD though. And there was a handful of us that everyone thought were insane that we're talking about building with it. Um, and <laughs> since, yeah. since then, since then, we've realized that hemp is not, you know, that there's there's four or five coalitions in um, all together now, local food, um, clothing and textile, uh, building materials and plant medicine. And really hemp fits into like all four of those quite handily. So instead of it being its own coalition, we've really found a way to work that into, you know, all four of the focuses that we have. Um and, and like you said, I mean, it really, it, it really does. The pandemic sort of exposed a lot of things like, you know, the need for local self-reliance, like what happened when the, the grocery store was out of meat in two weeks, everybody started looking around and signing up for CSAs, buying pasture-raised beef from a local butcher, you know, like the whole, who's your farmer question became relevant again. Do you know, <laughs> where do you, where do you get eggs when they don't have any in the grocery store? You know? Well, that's something that, you know, we've been Connected, And I'm, I grew up in Wyoming. I grew up in the West. I'm not as disconnected as I, or wasn't growing up as I am now where I'm in the city in Salt Lake. Right. But the majority of people that are really interested or that we're really starting to grab the attention of have been so disconnected about where their clothes come from. Where is that? Where's the chicken come from? And I'll tell you what, if 90% of us had to kill our own meat, we'd be vegetarians. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Same with building materials or anything like that. And yeah. So I want to kind of talk about like, first, I want to give huge crops to, or crops, huge props to what you're doing on the nonprofit side, because I think that it is, it's that everybody that's involved and who is it touching. Um, and I'd really like to come back to it, you know, and, and talk a little bit more, but I want to touch real quick on product and um, where you're buying product and what we're seeing in the industry and then what we potentially need in the industry in order to develop so that we can bring our supply chain back to the U S and support those local economies. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there are so many facets to that issue, you know, and you've heard it many times, the traditional chicken and egg scenario, but, and I don't remember who said this, you know, that I heard recently, but it's really the chicken, the egg and the hen house at this point, it's everything you have to build it all. And that was, again, one of the sort of stressful parts about starting this business. And then also one of the reasons why I've been so open to working with my colleagues um, is that we're not only just building our own businesses, we're trying to build an industry at the same time in the demand. So um, we've always been an open door for anyone that wants to talk processing or, you know, specifically what do I need as a hempcrete builder from them as a processor. Um, I will have that conversation openly um, because, again, I'm a fierce proponent of local and I believe that we should be able to get these things locally. Um, and these bales behind me, as you can see, um, they're lightweight. They don't make sense to ship. It's it's an odd sort of thing to wrap your brain around, but the heavier something is, the more cost efficient it is to ship. When it's really light, you're filling volume in a, in a truck or a container uh, and you're leaving, you know, capacity on the table really for that that piece of equipment that's moving it. So this this herd behind us comes from France. Um, one of the one of the main reasons why we initially did this was because we bought some lower cost herd from overseas at one point. Uh, and it was very low quality. I mean, the, the low price really correlated exactly to the low quality. For us, for hempcrete, the absence of dust and fiber is critical. There can be little to none. Um, and dust meaning, you know, particles beneath a certain sieve size that would interfere with the set. Uh, beyond that, uh, the, the matrix that you're creating in hempcrete uh, where you're trapping air pockets gets clogged if there's too many fines or too much fiber. Uh, and then at that point, you're making a, a more dense and massive wall, but it's not as insulative because it doesn't have that trapped air. So we are probably about as picky as it comes when it comes to the exact specification for herd for building. Uh, but if you're hitting that specification for building grade, you're also hitting what they expect for animal bedding. Uh, and that's something that I think, you know, is it needs to be sort of rectified in the industry here is that if you're producing herd and you say, mm, this probably isn't that great for building, let's sell it as animal bedding. That's not good either, because you're sort of uh, you're setting a low bar for people that might buy it and say, wow, this stuff's really dusty. It's not any better than the wood shavings and it's really expensive. So why am I using it? So the the quality for building is very similar to the quality for animal bedding. So if you're hitting one or the other, you're going to have you know, the other, the other side covered. And at this point, to be honest, and this is another reality check for the industry, the demand for bedding products is much higher than it is for building. Um, we brought in seven shipping containers last year, about 30,000 pounds a piece. So maybe 200,000 pounds were the hemp herd last year um, and built 10, 10 projects with it. <laughs> that, that amount of herd maybe represents like 150 to 200 acres. So it's really not my demand is not even yet enough for a processor. I might be, they might need 20 or 30 people like me before they can even say that they're getting close to the capacity of their piece of equipment or what have you. So it's, it's, you know, I try to be as realistic and you could say pessimistic, but I try to be as realistic as possible when I talk to people about answering this question to say that um, there's quite a bit of development that needs to be done on the market side um, as well as the processing. So in our case, where we are in Pennsylvania, um, it's obviously not as expensive for me to bring in material from France and use it in the Northeast because it's just making that that transatlantic, you know, trip. Um, shipping has become very expensive. So, it, you know, it's it's gotten much more expensive for me recently. 
Um, but we're still able to get a consistent, reliable product. I can have what I need when I need it. There's no question about supply. Um, every bag I've ever gotten is the same quality. Um, and I don't know if you can see it, but there's a little sticker on the, on the bags here uh, from a third-party body in France that certifies the material as appropriate for building. And that has helped me dramatically in getting projects approved when I'm talking to a code enforcement office and saying, hey, look, I know, you don't, I know you've never heard of this before, but here's the product that I'm using, and it is certified by someone somewhere as appropriate for what I'm asking you to do with it. So that's helped a lot, too. Um, although it's more expensive, we don't really make anything on it. For the amount of money that we have to put out to bring a container in, um, we make very little money on it. It's really not worth it. But the point is that we have it for the project. So we're able to get the work and do the work because we have the material. Yes, I'm not making what I'd like to be making on it. Um, but this shipping drama actually set a really good precedent for the American producers. Right now, we've got a couple that are coming online. Um, and because this is so expensive now to import, they're actually able to set their price a little bit higher and be very competitive. Uh, whereas I would have hoped to get American building quality heard for maybe 25, 30 cents a pound back when I started. That was sort of what I was hoping, where I was paying 40 to 50 cents a pound for imported. Now we're, we're at the like 80, 90 cent mark for imported herd, which leaves the door open for American producers to charge 50, 60, 70 cents a pound and still be very competitive. So it's actually in a, in a way it's a, it's a good thing kind of not, not for the buyer, but for the seller, you know, and, and that's what we're hoping with American farmers of hemp is that they'll be able to sort of pick their, set their price rather than being reliant on subsidies like they are for everything else. So you had a comment there. It looked like, <laughs> See, tricks on me. <laughs> was out in this outside. I swear, yeah. every, every morning at 10 a.m., we get yard crew outside. Oh, yeah. That's what they're doing. Uh, I feel like this has just brought back focus to that supply chain and the need to fix the supply chain so that we have that, or to bring that capital injection in so that we can produce volume that is needed, right? And again, 150 acres, like you said, is a very small, small input or need from farm size when we're talking about the scale over the next couple of years. Yeah, 12, 12, 15,000 acres. Some of these facilities are, are going to need to run, you know, at a, at a profitable rate. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, the, 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 another thing too, that I, that I try to tell people is, you know, it's, it's almost as important right now to have, you know, farmers in the field. Um, it is as important right now to have farmers in the field learning how to grow the crop, how to bring it in, how to harvest it, all of that stuff, um, as it is to have that, you know, million dollars and those PhDs on your team. They're going to get you so far, but without the farmers, and this is agriculture, this isn't horticulture like cannabis flower is horticulture, right? And there's good recent gorilla knowledge, you know, uh, on how to grow cannabis flower really well. We know how to do that really well, but the farmers are the ones that have to relearn how to grow the fiber industrial crop. And that does not happen overnight. You cannot give seed to a farmer and in the first year, um, expect and be sure that they're going to have something that's, that's worth processing. It literally it's farming, it's agriculture. It takes seasons worth of iterating, not failing, but iterating, to get it right. And they have to relearn how to do that. So, you know, there's organizations, one, one of which is in Pennsylvania, 
um, the Don group um, that we've worked with for the Project PA Hemp Home, they've been working with farmers for three or four years now. And they're now looking at bringing in a processor, a piece of equipment. So it's literally, if you, if you, if it seems like a distant dream and it's something that you want to do, or you think you want to do, or you have a group of friends that have the acreage and you guys want to make a go of it, um, really it's important to get the seed in the ground and start learning how to, how to, how to work with it, how to grow it, what grows well in your area, what to do in certain situations, you know, heavy rain, no rain, things like that. You, you have to start doing that now so that by the time you have that down and you've got the money in place, you know, whether it's from government, you know, grants or subsidies or, you know, private investment to put the equipment in that you're actually able to produce to that, to that volume. So, you know, again, I'm very open and I I've talked to many, if not all of the, the early startup processors here. Um, I get samples from them. I pay for samples. I want a 500 pound super sack. I don't, you know, I can't tell from a one gallon Ziploc bag of Hempford. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't tell anything from that. So, you know, again, we're very open and we, you know, we talk openly um, and, and I, and I try to support them. I'd like to see what they're producing. I'd like to see how close it is to what I need. Um, beyond that though, uh, there's also, you know, this sticker again, the way, how do we, how do we get that sticker on these American bags with an organization here? So that's where the USHBA comes in. Um, and the, you know, the process for that is working with ASTM to establish a standard, but also the testing protocol for how is that lab, you know, expected to examine a sample? How many, how often are they sampling? What are they sampling from? Uh, and, and how are they establishing or how are they grading the herd to say, yes, this is building quality or no, it isn't. So that whole process is, is at play right now. Um, I am no longer on the board of directors for the USHBA. I'm a corporate member. So we're, we, we still support the organization. Um, I've, I've moved on to, to focus on other things and make way for other people to be in, in those shoes. But, um, the process that we started was to work with ASTM, uh, and come up with this specification, uh, which is loosely based on the French one. It's not, it's not being done in any way. And I want to be clear about this, that we're, you know, nothing that I've done organizationally with the USHBA or, or elsewhere, um, has been done in such a way to corner the market. It's really just to bring that base standard up, right? So think about, you know, the just a certification. It isn't an end-all be-all. It doesn't no. say that any other product is not superior. It's just saying this meets these specs and standards and gives some reassurance to people to say, okay, I can trust in that certificate. For, or building, for, building, for building departments. I mean, it's very similar. The analogy I like to use is that it's similar to the crushed stone aggregate in concrete. Three-quarter inch stone, it can be, you know, uh, it can be quarried anywhere, but it needs to hit a basic standard for cleanliness and the distribution of the different particle sizes. And that's not a problem. Why do we need that? So that we know that concrete is the same in, you know, Salt Lake City as it is in Philadelphia. So, um, and and in that way, then you can build uh, the 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 uh, the codes around it. So, you know, that part of our, you know, other work with this was obviously getting the IRC code written. Um, and, and having that in place now we've referenced within that, the, the ASTM standards that are being developed for, um, for the herd and for other components, but that's really what a code is. Building code is, you know, the, the rules around it and ASTM sort of covers the, 
the actual testing standards so that the metrics by which you're assuming uh, you know, a, a, a process or a material is is suitable for what you're doing with it. So um, all those dominoes are starting to fall though, right? Like we've got processors that are getting close, really, really damn close. And the things that are slowing them down now are growing pains, like, you know, getting getting their pieces of equipment running properly and optimized and everything. So we've got people that are getting really close. And I'm really excited for that. Um and, you know, beyond that, we're working together as an association, like we said, to set those guidelines so that they're not done specifically so that they're not done in a way that makes it so that only one piece of equipment or only one cultivar is suitable. No way. We don't want that at all. And we were very careful in writing both the IRC index and also this ASTM code to say that, you know, that, again, it's, it's, it's an open playing field and we're encouraging innovation and things like that. This is more about that end product after processed, what goes into that building material, not necessarily where it comes from that. Right. So much to discover. Right. And I, yeah. I do see just like with corn and soybean, right. We're going to see certain genetics that are going to be focused in certain areas for certain end products or types of materials. But yeah, I think right now there's just such a gray area to say that one genetic is going to work for your product across the world. And that's Yeah. Well, and that, and that comes down to the equipment as well. And that's what, you know, another thing that I've always tried to encourage when people are talking about the process of, you know, getting from, you know, being a farmer who wants to grow hemp to actually having a, you know, a deliverable end product is to say, you know, work collaboratively with the farmers in your area, find people that are interested in doing it with you, um, work together and share your notes, figure out what the best cultivar is for your area. Then once you find a piece of equipment, you can tune that piece of equipment specifically to the cultivar that you're working with, whether it's the Chinese or the Italian varieties that have a big thick stalk or the, you know, Eastern European varieties that are thinner, um, you know, depending on what you're trying to do, having some continuity between what's being delivered to the factory um, so that you're not constantly having to readjust gate heights and openings and things like that in your equipment. Um, it's going to put you further ahead if you can work collaboratively. And that's why you've seen a lot of the processors are actually providing the seed to the people that they're contracting because they want to make sure that they're getting that continuity. Um, and I think that's really smart. And if you're, again, if you're a group of farmers in an area thinking about this, um, you know, there are ways to start growing for grain. For example, there's grain harvesting, drying and storage equipment in every county in America. Um, it exists already and you can use it to grow hemp grain right now. What you do with the stalks then is different. That, that may require a different piece of equipment, a different combine, something. Um, but the grain, you could start learning the crop and growing the grain um, and, and be able to deliver an end product. Now, is there the, the demand for the grain on the other side of that? That also remains to be seen, but there's ways that you can work your way into it. So I, I really try to encourage people to, to collaborate and work together on, on this with the people in their area, whether you're processing and growing, or if you're doing something like what we're doing, focusing in a specific industry, um, you've heard a lot, but there's a lot more to gain from working together collaboratively right now than there is to compete over nothing. You know, there's nothing to compete over yet. So why not work together? Everybody, you know, prime the pump. And that's sort of what I was mentioning before. One of the reasons why I haven't stopped importing the French herd is because I need to have it for my projects. And in my mind, um, we're creating demand, right? Like if we can get to a point where we have a sizable demand for the material and we used French material to get there, 
I'll switch overnight. As soon as, as soon as we have all these things come together and we have an American certification, somebody who's got their compression bailing down and all of that, and they're really hitting their stride. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm switching, you know, like there's no, there's no need. I, I don't have any desire to import from France endlessly. Um, it's literally just, and again, this analogy, priming the pump, we're, we're using this material now to build our business and create the demand so that when we're ready and when the industry is ready, we can have a seamless transition and jump, you know, right to an American product of some kind um, as locally as possible, hopefully. Well, and it gives us that opportunity to compete on the economics, right? Right now, when we're importing, you know, we're shaving off of that profitability a lot yeah. that, you know, impacts what we can potentially pay back to our farmers. And so I imagine in the very near future, we're going to start to see that switch as we do start to see scale of both processing and acreage. And I yeah. think, you know, we're going to see scale now. And let me ask your opinion of this, I guess. What I see is we're seeing a lot of scale of processing and we're really struggling to bring the acreage in, right? Because commodities, we're now up against this commodity battle with these other crops. And so I don't envision it being overnight, but I do envision we're going to make this this slow crawl over this next couple of years as we do bring yeah, processing in that secures that acreage for farming. To get the acreage down. Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, the the one of the big problems this year uh, in, in Pennsylvania in particular, there were there were groups that were looking to contract farmers with seed, um, you know, this is this past year. Uh, and let's say like a five hundred dollar an acre guarantee any other year. That's pretty damn good compared to corn and soy. It might be about what it is on a normal basis, but it's pretty damn good. It's speculatively for a farmer to say, OK, I'm I'm or, or for them to not have to speculate and say, I have a guarantee of five hundred dollars per acre. Uh, but unfortunately, the government set the subsidies for corn and soy at seven and eight hundred dollars an acre. So it was a non-starter. I mean, you couldn't get a farmer to talk about it. Um, beyond that, we have to be careful with you know the the agricultural farmers, like the you know true honest you know farmers, looking at what happened with CBD and saying, I don't want any part of that. Um, and, and, you know, some very few of those types of farmers do dove into CBD. Some of them did a lot in the Amish community actually here did, um, and they'll never plant another CBD seed again. They just won't, it's gotten a black eye and it doesn't matter if it becomes profitable, they just won't touch it again. So we have to be very careful that that doesn't happen on the fiber industrial side as well, that we're not making promises that can't be delivered upon. Uh, and thus, you know, the, these are farmers. They'll say no. If they yeah. hear one one bad story from a friend who they trust, they'll say no every time. So, <laughs> Well, I think that's where we need to be careful, too, is the type of people we're doing business with and meeting them. And that's where I like the like even at a thousand dollars or nine hundred dollars per acre, you know, so it covers all of input costs plus that five hundred dollars per acre in profit. That, right. That's in in the past been like you said a good opportunity for them uh what do you think it's going to take to really bridge this gap you know what is the data that we need or what's the focus that the industry needs sorry i had a bug on <laughs> <You mean attacks>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i would i would say that political political tailwinds are, are going to be the the one thing that really helps to carry this forward and what i'm most excited about is uh, the potential, I won't say that it's for sure, um, but the potential for a carbon credit trade system where um, a farmer who's employing, you know, who's already employing, you know, sort of regenerative organic 
farming practices that's rotating hemp in uh, can begin to start measuring and selling the carbon credit for the amount of carbon that they're sequestering in their field. Hemp is really good at that, storing carbon in the soil because of the root system and all that. So um, if there's a way to quantify that and then put a price on that so that the farmer can get an extra subsidy, let's say even if it's $100 or $200 an acre per year for fixing carbon in the soil and being able to measure that and sell it, all of a sudden hemp is going to be way more attractive. Um, already, I think it- Carbon becomes that subsidy. What's that? It's almost like carbon becomes the subsidy for hemp. Right, right. Everything else is government reliant, right? And hemp now becomes this, has its own added benefit of the carbon. And then farmers can break that cycle of being reliant on the government and they can start setting prices for their their end product. Again, this has been said a lot lately, farmers buy at retail and sell at wholesale. So we've got to figure out a way to fix that. Um, but I think carbon credits can definitely work. Again, if farmers are already engaged in regenerative no-till organic crop rotation, um, hemp already makes sense. If you were going to sow clover or something that you were just going to till in the next year anyway, why not grow hemp? Uh, why not put hemp in that field? It's better for the soil anyway. You weren't expecting a, a return on it. The field was resting or it was in a cycle where it was you know, off production. And then by the time you do plant corn in there again, you should get a better yield. So there's already a good reason, I think. And a lot of it comes down to education. There's great, you know, there's a great documentary recently on, on, you know, carbon farming and and the amount of carbon that's released by agriculture on Netflix. I can't remember the name of it, but um, they, they were interviewing a guy from NRCS called Ray Archuleta. Um, and he was talking about how much, you know, disturbance is created by traditional farming and how much, you know, carbon's being released. So anyway, we want to get down that track, but if you're, if you're looking at it, the, the potential is there for both the farmer to be getting a, a carbon credit for the amount of carbon that they're fixing in the soil. And then for us as builders to be then using a carbon sequestered product to offset the use of other carbon intensive products. So there should be a subsidy on the other side as well. There needs to be for, like for, avoidance and a sequestering. Like right, exactly. So that that's really exciting to me, and I think something like that could very quickly tip the scales in the direction of hemp. And that takes political pressure. That takes you know lobbying and and all the kind of dirty underhanded things that go along with that. Um, We're starting but, to see it come down right on a global scale. There are penalties being implemented in other countries. We just didn't sign on to it, but for the carbon footprint. And so it's coming. <laughs> I think it's coming. Yeah, I think it's coming. And I'm really, really excited by the work that's being done at, you know, yeah. places like Hudson Carbon and in, in Hudson, New York, where they're literally focusing right now on how to establish those metrics of, you know, how how is it, how how are you deciding or how are you demonstrating the amount of carbon that you're fixing in the soil so that a price can then be put on it. Um, and in Europe, I think already Ben Ben Dobson was saying that it's seventy five to one hundred dollars per per ton that you sequester, whereas right now it's like twenty five dollars, which is sort of arbitrary and not very realistic. And good luck finding someone to buy it. So, like you just said, we have to do what they've done in Europe and really make it, you know, mandatory that that people are are focusing on this, and then that that market may evolve. Let's say it's you know five years from now. It realistically, hopefully. If in five years from now, farmers can be, you know, being paid for the amount of carbon they're sequestering, and then we get paid for the amount that we're offsetting, you know, that's where we're really getting somewhere. Practices that are better long-term. It's like this reoccurring yep. 
cycle, right? That we've gotten into this big pay, fast payout security of monocropping or bad practices on our soil. And so it really is this, we've got to figure out how to reward or pro- like put consequences out for those bad players. But I think it's still that question of, right now it's really easy to say if you change your soil your practices from X to you know Z or from A to B, uh, what that difference is, but what about for those that have already been in regenerative agriculture and, and, you know, how do we reward that, that since it's, no, we're not showing then an increase. Um, and so those are some of those. Anyways. Yeah. The little gray areas and fine lines. Yeah. Right. Because they're really who are pushing this. They're who right. are, oh, like, listen, it, it has been a difference and it has, well, they will, they will all of a sudden have a brand new business opportunity open up and becoming consultants for other farmers that are interested in doing it. Yeah, so, <laughs> you know, exactly. we'll need, we'll need people teaching that and, and, you know, spreading the gospel as it were, um, to, to really get people to, to change. So, um, I'm excited by that. And, and what we've done personally in our business in the meantime is to focus on getting, really uh, efficient at install. Okay. So one of the other things beyond the materials that makes it so expensive to do the work that we're doing is the amount of time that it takes to install hempcrete by hand on a job site on a custom architectural home. Um, You know, how do we, how do we in the meantime, while the industry works out, you know, we help, obviously we're trying to help as much as we can, but we're still also running a business. How do we, you know, what, what can we do in the meantime to get it to the point where uh, by the time the materials come down, we're as efficient as possible at installing and the costs on our end in terms of installation and, and, you know, delivery are, are so much lower um, that by the time we have the, the local materials, then we're bringing, we're closing that gap where hempcrete might be 30% more expensive than traditional or, garbage building which is you know tract building homes um it's everybody wants to know how much more expensive is it and i'm like well what are you comparing it to um if you're comparing it to a toll brothers or ryan homes kind of building then uh yes it's more expensive because it's a far superior construction material it's going to last a lot longer but um but spray application for us is where i really i i thought you know and, and as soon as you've done cast in place you you immediately start thinking, okay, there's got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a more efficient way to do it. This was great. It's fun. It's a great thing to do as a community. It's the most accessible way to do hempcrete cast in place. Um, you need basic carpentry skills and know how to to do it properly. Um, so it'll always have a place, and I think it's always very valid for that. It's a wonderful thing to do as part of a community. But um, to do to try to do what I'm doing and turn it into a business. Um, where, you know, you have to make, make, make money and, and, and get, you know, cash flow. Um, it's really difficult to do that with cast in place where one project could take a month. A lot of the houses that we've sprayed are normal, you know, 2,500 square foot residential homes that, uh, if we were to have done them by cast in place method would have taken nearly a month just for that, just for the cast in place part, a whole month of hard work. Um, and, and then to have to wait and tell someone they have to wait another eight to 10 to 12 weeks for it to dry before they can do the plaster. I mean, that's a total non-starter for a traditional builder, a general contractor. They think you're out of your mind. Um, when you tell them that one process alone takes a month to do, and then a month and a half to two months worth of waiting for it to be ready. 
it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's insane. So it's great for the, the type of clientele that we've had, which are motivated, you know, wonderful human beings, but motivated, you know, homeowner builders or general contractors that are sort of already looking at the green track. Um, and they sort of understand that, that there's a little bit of a different way that you have to work with it. And the sequencing may be a little bit more expanded. Um, but it's, it's really tough, uh, you know, when, when the cost of the materials is what it is and we aren't marking them up, we can't mark them up or we wouldn't even get the work. Um, and then, you know, the, the cost of install to say you need an eight person team for an entire month, it really gets to be this exclusive thing that only people who can afford to have the conscience are able to do it. Um, my argument is always that, yes, you might spend 30% more, but, the cost of ownership, obviously, over time with the energy savings is so much lower that it really, if you sat down and looked at it, it is a good investment. It's a really good investment when you're building a home to use a material that lowers your your monthly inputs. I mean, that that that's an, that's an easy sell. But when the rubber meets the road and you're talking to a client who's got a muddy hole in the ground and wants to build a house on it, and it's 30% more than doing it the cheap way, that's, that's, a, that's a really tough sell. So um, for me, that's where spray application sort of came in. And I, you know, I'd been looking in, into it sort of from the beginning. I knew it existed, but I, it wasn't here yet. It wasn't really in the United States yet. So there's nowhere that I could go to see it or to train with it or work on it. I would have to travel to do that. So um, I actually met Damien uh, in 2019 at the first U.S. Hemp Building Summit in Idaho, hosted by um, hemp texture. That's where we met Damien. The whole world, all, all, excuse me, the whole community in the United States met Damien for the first time at that expo. Um, and, and it was a failed demonstration. They didn't have the right size piece of equipment there to drive it. So Damien was all flustered and pissed off when it, when it was done. And I walked up to, him, I said, this is great. Like I understood right away why that machine was different from the other ones that I had looked at and the improvements that he had made you know, sort of answered a lot of questions and the reservations that I had in my mind. I said, this is wonderful. And uh, he was all upset and he's like, no, it didn't work. <laughs> but there's a really, there's a, there's a really iconic picture though of me holding the E-Reasy Lance while the entire crowd is like paying attention to something Maddie was saying. And they're all their backs are turned to it. And I'm holding it like a goof, you know, like, like I'm on a hunting party, you know, holding it really excited. But um, but anyway, so that, that, that point in time is when I decided to buy the, the system. Um, it was still managed by Hempitecture. Uh, fast forward to 2020, the pandemic hit again, I was considering my options. What, what was I going to have to do to make ends meet? Um, and they called me, Tommy and Maddie called me and said they had a project in Missouri that they needed help on. And would I come and bring my equipment? So that ended up being the first home in the United States that was spray applied. Um, which is really cool. And we did it in five days. I'm pretty sure I wasn't even supposed to leave the state at that point. Um, so it was kind of nerve wracking from that point of view. Um, but we got it done, sprayed a house in five days, proved the concept. And it was like, wow, there's something here, you know, then it wasn't perfect. Don't get me wrong. The first one was not perfect, but um, it, it, it was done and it, and it proved the concept. So um, at the end of 2020 is about when, you know, Hempitecture decided to make their pivot to hemp wool. Um, and they graciously released that that agreement to me um, with Damien. So that's when I picked it up. Uh, yeah. And since then, you know, 2021, we did again, like about eight or 10 different houses last year with it. Uh, and then uh, this this winter, my project was 
um, finding a, a contract fabrication partner to to have the equipment made here in the United States. So starting to reverse that, you know, supply chain issue of like something breaks in this machine and I have to order it from France. That's not, I won't, I wouldn't ask. Six months. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask a, another contractor to buy a piece of equipment where you had to wait for someone like at the worst case, someone to get on a plane and bring you apart. I mean, that's ridiculous. And Damien understood that. So part of our agreement is to basically Americanize the system in terms of the components for the hardware. Uh, and then also the binder, which right now we are importing um, the E-Reezy spray, spray applied binder is specific to the machine. We are working with him to reformulate it here, but my goal for this year was to get the equipment, um, you know, localized and available. So we've done that. We decided to work with EZG Manufacturing, who makes the mixer that we use. Um, they're a, an equipment manufacturer out in Ohio, uh, and they are making the base component now of the Ereasy box, and then all the other bits and pieces I've sourced um, here in the United States as well. So we've we've announced that we've released um, the systems uh, to be pre-purchased. They're actually uh, just waiting on motors right now. We have them all put together. And of course, there's a supply chain issue around the motors, but um, we have them all ready to go. They'll be delivered here uh, mid-May uh, to the first four people so far that have bought them. Uh, one in Missouri, uh, one in Michigan, uh, one in North Dakota, uh, and where's the fourth one? Uh, Montana. So they're out there now. And uh, as part of that, we started doing a training program. Uh, and I, I hesitate to call it a workshop, although it was more or less a workshop, a four day long workshop. But it's a training program where we're teaching people specifically how to spray. Um, and it was really special this year when I had planned that. Um, I didn't know that Damien was going to be available to come, but he wrote me a message saying, I got a visa, I'm coming. So we actually had Damien here in person for the first two of our, our training workshops. Uh, starting at the beginning of April. Um, and it was really special to have that experience because I had not get, gotten to work with him yet. My plan was in 2020, I was supposed to go to NOCO and then right on the heels of that to York, UK for the International Hemp Building Summit. And it never happened, obviously, because of COVID. So I missed, I mean, I all, all the work that I did in between then um, was really, you know, me, me learning how to do it on my own and how to work with this machine on my own, which was great because by the time he did show up and came to these trainings, I was really prepared to absorb. And I had really great questions for him, you know, what, what he was able to teach. Uh, so anyway, that was a, that was a really wonderful experience. We've got some great pictures of that. We had 14 people between the two trainings, um, that showed up and we partnered with, uh, Homeland Hemp Co. Uh, Matt Marino, he's out in North Dakota and has just designed um, a precast panel system. So we made 35 four foot by eight foot by nine and a quarter inch deep pre-framed, pre-sprayed hempcrete panel sections that can then be shipped out on the site after they're cured with some of the finishes on and put together like, you know, Legos basically. So like off-site modular building, that's where I see so much interest coming to us. Um, and I always just refer them over to the Belt Hemp Builders Association, but tons of yep. people come to us that are, you know, really looking to reinvent the way homes are built and change yep. materials. And so, you know, building in shops, shipping in containers, and then putting together on site instead. Well, and hopefully the the goal and Matt Matt's interest in in you know from Homeland Hemco and joining this process was to say you know, if I am going to take this and decentralize it, because it really doesn't, it's the same for a, 
a precast panel as it is for a cinder block. You don't ship pallets of cinder block all over the country. You you have you know facilities that make them locally, and then they're shipped within maybe a hundred mile radius of that facility. Um, same for these panels. Matt, you know, would really like to have it decentralized, but how do you do that? It's the same problem with casts in place on site as it is on a panel in a factory. There's a whole lot of variables that go into doing it by hand that, you know, quality control would be a nightmare. So for him, you know, his interest was in the spray application equipment to say, if we're spray applying the panels in a controlled environment in a factory, do we get a more consistent product? And the answer is absolutely yes. We had 14 people who'd never held the lance to spray before that had no problem spraying and installing the material into these panels. So that was really exciting was to say, look, there might be something here where, um, you know, Matt worked, you know, really hard and, and hired a, a structural engineer, actually the same structural engineer that we used for the IRC code, Matt hired and worked with to come up with the design for these panels. So although they look simple, there's a lot that goes into doing that properly, shipping them, um, assembling them on site, how you're, how you're framing and connecting them. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. So um, it's really exciting. And I'd encourage anybody that hasn't already heard about Matt to check him out and look into it if you're looking for a solution. Um, but a lot of the stress and the pain, even for spray application or cast in place that you experience on site, spraying or casting someone's design it's their architectural you know whatever masterpiece and there's lots of cutbacks and switchbacks all things that make it more difficult to do on site and add time and expense to the installation process can be done in a factory environment you can still have a very architectural build but you're using units using these modular components um, and they can be a palette of them that that a designer can work with um, but then they're created in a factory environment. They all come out perfectly. They're all perfectly installed and packed, uh, and then they can be shipped out to site. So that's another, again, that's another example of like, how do we get as efficient as possible in installation and systems around the installation to make it so that we're, we're limiting the, you know, the sequencing issues on site and modular building is not, you know, modular building is, is definitely the way the industry is going. If you look at, if anybody's ever seen a house being built. Um, or driven down a highway, you've seen those trucks with all the roof trusses stacked up, you know, big triangles stacked up, framed out on a, on a truck. That's modular building. Carpenters don't make the roof trusses on site anymore. They order them on a truck. They show up pre-built and they use a crane to put them together. So we've already started that process of modular building, component-based building, um, and it's absolutely the future. But um but again, you know, the, the, the spray application equipment makes it so that you can go out and more easily do a custom structure or a retrofit, right? It's really good for retrofitting existing structures, um, which, you know, as an aside, I personally feel like is a great way to sequester a lot of carbon quickly. The cost of building a new building, whether it's modular components or precast blocks, whatever sprayed and cast on site, if it's a new building, there's carbon costs involved with that new building that are not involved when you're retrofitting an existing structure. So especially in the Northeast here, and you've been out here um, where I live, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey, hundreds of thousands, millions of old homes that are poorly insulated, still good structurally, but poorly insulated and needing, you know, badly needing updating. Um, so that to me, and, and, you know, specifically for Damien's work in France is what he does a lot of as well is retrofitting. And in their case, it's like four and five and 600 year old buildings, 
but uh, retrofitting to me was one of the other things with the the spray application piece of equipment that I thought it was very well suited for. And it turns out to be. So it's another answer, like I said, for if you're a contractor who wants to get into this, maybe you're already in insulation or uh, the woman in, in Michigan, Kim, who's buying a machine as a painter. So she's already in the, in the contracting world. Um, and understands efficiencies and, and, you know, getting a job done and things like that. So um, you can put that piece of equipment in someone's hands and they can be successful doing small to mid-sized projects. You can also do large installs with it, um, but you can make your bread and butter retrofitting someone's garage, turning their garage into a livable space or, you know, a basement or, you know, an accessory building on, on a, on a farm, a pole building or something like that could be insulated. So this, this spray application equipment in my mind puts hempcrete a little bit, you know, a step further into, uh, the traditional construction and building world. Um, and in particular insulation work, you know, there's, there's a lot of insulation subcontractors now that do traditional bat spray foam, dense pack cellulose, which is spray applied, um, they have the equipment to do all of that. So why not add one more and offer a green solution to your clients and say, hey, if you can stomach the upfront cost, this is a, this is a wonderful material to use and we can install it. So um, anyway, there's a lot in that in that little bite there, Mandy. So stop me when you have a question. <laughs> we're, we're at an hour and I want to be respectful of your time and everything's time, but I could keep diving into this. And I'd love to actually bring you back sometime and do a panel discussion about some of these topics, right? To bridge yeah. the gap. Because I hear a lot of times that there's people that want to get into it, but there's still a lot of reservation. And I think we just barely touched on what those reservations are around like labor costs and supply chain. But how do we really bridge that gap for those yep. large companies so that we can make this scalable, right? Because like you said, just like farming, it's one thing to grow a few plants. It's another thing to grow a few thousand acres. Right. Same a couple houses, but to really turn it into a scalable business we're teaching construction workers that are like teaching old dogs, new tricks, right? Yeah. The industry itself moves slower, you know, or we're expected. We have, we have to be able to put out the labor force also. And so I'd love to dive into that more because I do, I think that we're just hitting the surface of where hemp falls into construction and building materials and the insulation. And you touched on it too. I've been saying for years, I want to build a pole barn house and I, would love to insulate it and build the inside with a barn dominium <laughs> so bad and i want it very yeah. industrial and yeah so people they're beautiful have- but the unfortunate part is because they're so big people are using things like spray foam and rigid foam to insulate them yeah. uh but it's interesting the way that a pole barn is structured um it's a post and beam structure so you can put whatever you want in between there and between the posts and beams so um, having a cassette or a panel like the one Matt's making to fit right into those, that could be a whole business in and of itself. But, um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that, Mandy. I'd love to, to, to check back in. I think the only other thing I wanted to mention quickly was just a little bit more about, um, you know, our, our nonprofit work. Um, it's called altogether now PA altogether now PA.org. Uh, please look at it. It's a model that we want very badly to see other people replicate in their area. Um, focusing on uh, local self-reliance and uniting urban and rural communities, right? So we have such a terrible divide in this country right now, mostly because of the last presidency, uh, where the urban and the rural communities are are very much at odds with each other, but we're so dependent on each other. Um, And we think it's very important that people realize that, like we were saying earlier, that not everything that's in the grocery store may always be on those shelves, nor should you be buying it. 
if there's something available locally, the the low cost has a hidden price tag, right? So you can go to Walmart and buy something for $2. It might be $3.50 at a local store, but that money is staying in your community. So it's really important. And this is the work that we're focusing on both, you know, uniting the urban and rural communities, but also encouraging that local self-reliance. Hemp fits into all of it. Um, it can feed you, it can clothe you, it can be your home, uh, it can be your medicine, right? It really fits all four of our basic needs. So um, definitely check out that website. Um, Judy's been uh, around on lots of podcasts and things like that. Um, you can find more out uh, more about Judy uh, pretty much anywhere. Uh, Judy actually just testified in front of, I think, a state ag panel um, with Lori Daytner from Don Services. So we've got some real powerhouse women running things here in Pennsylvania, as it should be. The plant is feminine um, and uh, the energy is feminine. So we, we really appreciate that. Uh, but uh, wonderful things happening here in Pennsylvania, most of which are around our collaborative spirit, right? So work together, uh, link arms locally, um, you know, avoid the temptation to uh, sort of, you know, put other people down that are in the industry that might be doing the same thing as you. Um, celebrate each other. There's a whole lot more to be gained from from acting like that than there is uh, at this point doing anything else. There's nothing to fight over yet. So let's I make it so there's something to fight said. over. <laughs> I love what you said. This, yeah. have to rise the tides to raise all boats. Exactly. We cannot, as an industry, afford one person to fall. When I was in sports, um, one of my coaches used to always say, we are only as strong as our weakest link. And our industry is the same, right? If we have one group that is struggling or falling or doing something wrong, it's, it affects the whole industry. And so we right. really be able to rise, rise all tides. And so um, I'm going to put this out there. I don't know if Judy's listening, but I would love to invite her back to talk about, okay. your, about what you're doing. Uh, yeah. You've definitely, uh, you know, spoken very highly of her and I, I yeah. have her around. And so I'm going to put this out that yes, please invite her. I would love to have okay. her here. And I she'll, love that she'll take you up on it and she'll be a great conversation. She's a wonderful human being. So, yeah. Love it. Well, thank you so, so much. Quick shout out. I wanted to, to read off um, our sponsors. We've got an incredible group of sponsors that have come on through the Friends of Hemp for our, our fiber variety trials. Um, we're really looking at the farm side to help provide data on a national level to, I think we did six different regions, 10 states, 10 varieties, um, all fiber focused so that we nice. can for data, right? And then with this data, be able to carry it into increased yields and carbon sequestration and quality of different, you know, fiber versus herd through different processors. Um, but obviously look at multiple years. So shout out to uh, Prairie Band Ag, IND Hemp, of course, they're fabulous and always involved. Almco, AgriLead, uh, South Bend Industrial Hemp, Melissa has definitely led the charge, Formation Ag, and then again, Westtown Bank and uh, Let's Talk Hemp have all really come together. And then we've got two more. Uh, National Industrial Hemp Council is coming on also to really get behind us and support us. Um, and so same thing, I'm all about the collaboration and trying to find ways to work together. So Cameron, anything that we can do as an association or group, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, how do people get in touch with you real quick if they're waiting or if they're looking to reach you? Yeah, we're uh, we're on all the social medias, uh, Marishamv um, on, on Instagram, Marishamv Cast Hemp on Facebook. Uh, my email address is Cameron at Marishamv.com. Uh, you can look in the links here. I think that Mandy will put up to get the spelling on that. 
Uh, and then, uh, my wife, if you're interested in, uh, materials or equipment, uh, Melissa at Amerishelm.com. So, um, yeah, you'll find us out here. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to do this again because I want to give a shout out to all the ladies in this industry more and more. I see the ladies are leading charges on big groups and collaboration. And so shout out to another awesome Mel in the industry. Yep. <laughs> I would also love to meet her and connect to yep. Anything we can do. And then I definitely will make my way out your direction and come visit sometime soon. Great. Yeah, we've we've got a couple local projects, um, one of which is in Stroudsburg with my friend Eric at the Hempstead um, in East Stroudsburg. Uh, that house is very close to us being sprayed. So when any, any anyone's ever in the area, um, East Stroudsburg, PA, um, there's a lot going on there. Um, Black Buffalo, the 3D printing company, just bought the airport there. Um, and is looking at how to work hemp into their 3D printing. And then we've got Eric in the Hempstead and a lot of things going on there. He's a CSA and an organic farm. Uh, and then also is going to have a wonderful hempcrete bed and breakfast for people to stay at. So um, keep your eyes out for that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah. thank you very, very much. Yep. Thank you, everybody else, for listening. Um, these, these are recorded, shared on our YouTube channel and on Hemp Hallway. We appreciate your support. Um, Cameron, I'd love to get you on with Global Hemp Association as well and help continue to, wow, help to continue to promote what you're doing. But any other questions, you guys, don't hesitate to reach out uh, tomorrow. Let me look real quick. Oh, I don't even have it pulled up. I closed down all my windows. But I do have another interview tomorrow. And of course, it's probably a really great one. And I don't have it pulled up. So we'll talk about it tomorrow. <laughs> Find it on our, on our website, globalhempassociation.org. Other than that, thank you very much, Cameron. Awesome. Thank you, Mandy. I appreciate it. For sure. Talk later. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye. -bye. Bye.